For years, I joined a father and mother in praying for their teenage son. Mom and dad had given themselves fully to the work of the ministry, both in the church and other ways as well. But they were heartbroken as their eldest son was living so rebelliously. Drugs, alcohol, even worse, a just a flat-out rejection of Christ. There really was no middle ground in his life at the time. What a glorious day it was when I received the news that he had repented, that he had come through fully for the Lord. His life was completely changed where there was anger. There was now joy. Where there was arrogance, and I mean deep arrogance, there was now humility. There was a hunger for the things of God. There was a hunger for the word of God. This is not dissimilar to what Paul describes regarding the conversion of the Colossian believers. Paul said that they were, prior to Christ, hostile in mind. And they did evil things. Not at all supportive of the gospel. Not at all interested in God. Wanted to do things their way. They were not interested in him. And they would live any way they pleased. Now let me make all of this personal and tie all of this together. As you you know, I made my first trip to Kazakhstan in 2009. Third flag from the top to my left. I met a guy named Alexander at the end of the trip. He and I became good friends. We had a lot of things in common. Alexander is the director of a Bible institute. He has planted a very vibrant church. This morning I have the big joy of announcing a new partnership that DBC has with his son, Daniel. The very one that I spoke of earlier. The one that we were praying for for quite a few years, to come to faith in Christ. So here is Daniel and Karina and their adorable little girl, Evangelina. So our lives and their lives are now a whole lot closer. DBC now has the joy of partnering with and supporting this wonderful family as Daniel works with the youth and the young adults In their church. The GO team had placed kind of a placeholder for a number of months uh, in anticipation of this possibly coming to fruition, which it did. And so now it has. So more information on him to come. But I want to just take a moment to clarify our relationship with Pastor Pavel in Kazakhstan as well. You might know that we've been supporting him for at least 10 years now. We began supporting him financially so he could leave his day job, his factory job, and dedicate himself fully to the church 
that he pastored. Well, he began, he was able to begin taking his pension from that job late last year. So he informed us that he no longer needs our financial support, and we appreciate his honesty and integrity in that. So we affirmed when we were there last summer that our friendship will continue, possible joint ministry together, but we will no longer be financially supporting Pastor Pavel. So I have included this announcement in our sermon because Daniel's conversion and his ministry is a beautiful example of what we are looking at in Colossians chapter 1. It's a beautiful illustration of what Paul was speaking to us last week. He also stated that the gospel is being proclaimed now to all creation. What a privilege and a joy for us to partner with believers for the gospel all over the world. Now... Paul has thus far showed us who Jesus Christ is and the stupendous redemption he has purchased for us. This was through his suffering, through his shed blood for us. Now Paul is going to personalize all of this, not only for himself, but also for us. He's working in this passage up to a crescendo. And this morning, he'll make two stops along the way to that punchline. Paul is going to show us that the gospel far outshadows anything that this world has to offer. That Christ is worthy of, us, of, of our all. It's not even a question. He is worthy of our very best. He traded in his privilege and his prestige and his power for persecution and troubles. And Paul never regretted it, not for one moment. He's also going to show us the nature of progressive revelation. That's a fancy way of saying how we learn more about the Lord, more about Christ in the New Testament than we did in the Old Testament. There are things in the Old Testament that were not clearly understood, not clearly revealed to us through the prophets. So let's trace carefully what Paul is saying here. Tim read our passage a little earlier. Keep in mind that Paul traded in privilege for persecution. That was his life. Everything that he has been speaking to, the glories of Christ and the soaring grandeur of the gospel, it is worth far more than anything this world has to offer. It's that beautiful. Before his conversion, Paul lived a life of ease. He was well respected. He had authority. He certainly was not wondering where his next meal would come from. Not only did he have his material needs met, but he lived a life of privilege, respect, and authority. He studied under the greatest and was a well-respected Pharisee, 
he commanded respect. Upon his conversion, Christ told him that he would suffer for his sake. When you read the book of Acts, when you read Paul's letters, you can see how all of that is played out. At times left for half dead, betrayed, and accused of so much. Paul's life in that sense literally made a 180 degree turn. A night and day difference. But here's the catch. Listen to what Paul says. In all of his persecutions, he rejoiced. That's a strong word. He rejoiced in his sufferings. It was an honor to preach the gospel and to nurture new churches. He would not trade it for anything in the world. I remember when my grandfather was well into his 80s. He was visiting us from England. And he recounted his life and all the trials that he faced since becoming a Christian at the age of 17. And I'll never forget it as a teenager. He said, I have no regrets. I have served the Lord to the best of my ability. I have no regrets. So this is a uniquely Christian statement. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn or scroll to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Paul is talking about the glories of the gospel, the eternal perspective, being a a co-heir with Jesus Christ. But he's dealing with the reality of suffering. Because it could be very possible that people would say, hey, we believe the gospel, but our life isn't getting any better. Like that is our challenges aren't just going away. Look at what he says in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth Comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. No comparison. What is before is so much greater than what we face today. And I will gladly, he says, suffer for the gospel I will turn in all of my prestige and honor that I had for the blessedness of knowing Christ and serving him. But what do we make of this expression, he says, to fill up that which is lacking in Christ's suffering? That's a very unique statement. Lots of unique statements in Colossians chapter 1. Does Jesus need to suffer more? Did he not finish his work at the cross? Not at all. This is regarding Christ's body, which is his church. Throughout the centuries, the church has suffered in many ways. 
oftentimes very severe trials. Paul was speaking to exactly this. Jesus was very clear in telling us that persecution is a part of following him. There was no bed of roses that was offered to his followers. We Christians should not be surprised at pushback, persecution, harassment, and even hatred. Once again, please note what Paul says. I rejoice. I rejoice in all of that. We serve the Lord with joy because of what he has done for us and for what lies ahead for each and every one of us. So that's stop number one. I'm suffering and I rejoice in suffering for the gospel. He's not just having abstract conversations about the gospel. He is suffering. He bore in his body the very marks of Christ. So that's stop number one. Now there's more because he's working towards a punchline. He explains to us how we got here. As in how the Bible speaks about Jesus and redemption and the church. And it's important for us to look at this. When we read the Bible in hindsight, when we as Christians read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, it's pretty clear to us how everything fits together. But if we're honest, not everything is crystal clear if you're simply reading the Old Testament. I mean, you see the wisdom and the power of God in creation. You see the faithfulness of God in Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. You see his holiness in giving the Ten Commandments and the law. You see the Hesed, the Hesed of God woven all throughout his Old Testament law. How we are to treat people, the downcast, the poor, the refugee, and so forth. You see the patience of God over and over and over again as the Israelites ignored and disobeyed God. You see the judgment of God when the Israelites were taken captive by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. Underneath all of that, God was addressing the sin problem in people. We see the blood of the Passover lamb, a young male lamb without defect. It's blood being brushed onto the doorpost of every home in the land. So that when they walk through their door for the last time, covered by the blood of the lamb, they would know they would never again return to slavery in Egypt. It's redemption. We see the day of atonement in which the high priest would make a sacrifice for his own sin. And then stand before God on behalf 
of the people. He would take a goat and confess the sins of the people upon that goat. And that goat would shed its blood and lose its life. He would sprinkle its blood on the mercy seat, which is where God met people. And the horns of the altar where people would flee for God's mercy. And then there would be a second goat. And he would lay his hands on that goat. And he would once again confess the sins of the people. And then that goat would be led out by his assistant right through all of the people. Right into the wilderness never to be seen again. As a picture of what forgiveness looks like. However, day after day, year after year. This would continue. It wasn't really solving the problem if they had to do this over and over and over and over again. But underneath all of this was the promise that someone was coming. That God would send a special one who would deal with sin. And he is called Messiah. His name would be called Mighty God because he is God. He would be born of a virgin, bypassing the sinful line of Adam. He would be called by Jeremiah, the Lord, our righteousness. The Lord who has become our righteousness. His days would be from eternity and he would be born in Bethlehem, said Micah, 500 years before he came. Just as it was said of Abraham that he would be a blessing to all nations, Isaiah tells us that through Messiah, the Gentiles, the Gentiles would be included in the blessings of of Messiah, the clearest passage of them all, Isaiah chapter 53. Messiah would suffer for sinners, and sinners would be justified through him. This great undercurrent in Scripture pointed to a man who would come, who would be glorious. Who would deal with sin. Who would be victorious. Who would reign forever and ever and ever. But in all of this. God didn't tell us everything. The glories of the church. In which Jew and Gentile are now together. In which the dividing wall has been torn down. And that's what Paul is referring to when he says the mystery has been revealed. Hints and details are found in the Old Testament, but only in the New Testament do we see the precision and the clarity and the big picture of who Jesus is and what he has done. I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. There are so many passages which speak to Christ and the fullness of revelation now that he has come. Listen to these words of Hebrews chapter 1. 
beginning in verse 1. This is how he opens. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, but, contrast, but, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now hear the echoes of Colossians in this passage. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Christ, upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is exactly Colossians 1. This is exactly it. After making purification for sins, redemption, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is Colossians chapter 1. It's giving us this picture of who Christ is and what he has done. What was not clear, completely clear in the Old Testament is now clear in the New Testament. Now, let's put all of this together. Remember at the beginning of the letter, Colossians 1, what does Paul call us? He calls us saints. Because that is what we are in Christ. Not because we have arrived at some level of maturity or spirituality, but because in Christ we are holy, we are set apart because we are in Christ. Not my performance, but his performance. Then, verses 9 to 11, Paul prays for us. He prays that we would have a solid position. That we would know who Christ truly is. That we would understand the gospel. That we would know who we are in him. Our position. That we would be positioned standing upon the truth. He prayed for our progress. That we would mature in Christ. That we would grow. That we wouldn't become stagnant or distracted. But that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling. He then prayed for the power. That we would walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is possible for us to have all of our doctrine right. To believe all of the right things. But we lack that special touch. The Holy Spirit. Our fellowship with Him. That gives us a vibrancy. Gives us strength. Being drenched in His presence. And being strengthened by Him. He told us in Colossians 1. The glory of who Jesus is. His power, his wisdom, his glory. He showed us the beauty of redemption of the cross. That Christ has reconciled us to God by his own blood. In his own body. Through his own suffering. Now here's the punchline. 
He sums all of it up in one beautifully glorious statement. This is that mystery that is now fully revealed. Saints, you should know this statement. You should memorize this Bible truth. You should place it where you can see it around your house so you are reminded of it over and over again. Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's the gospel. That's why we do not live for lesser things. Because Christ lives in us. He is the hope of glory. This, my friends, this is what a Christian is. Christ lives in us. It is not a complicated path to follow or to learn. It is Christ in me. The hope of glory. I have believed in him. We believe that he died for me. I believe he died for me on the cross. I believe he was buried. And I believe that he rose again. And our trust, our confidence, and obviously our allegiance is to him. Christ in me, the hope of glory. He is not just a picture hung on the wall. He is not out there somewhere. He is here. He is with me. And he will never leave me. He is for me. He is never against me. I don't wish or think Or kind of think that he is with me. I know that he is with me. He lives in me. Our lives are intrinsically tied together. That is the entire point of Romans chapter 6. Fellow saint, lift up your head. We are overcomers in Christ, do not get entangled into the affairs of this world. Do not be led astray by ideologies that are not founded upon Christ and his truth. Do not lose heart. The hope of glory is a wonderful term. That means... We have within us the hope, the certainty, the assurance of eternal life. Let us not grow weary. Let us not grow faint. Let us encourage one another. Pray for one another. Love people. Let us care for the poor. Be mindful of the marginalized. Let us preach The gospel as the fields are white unto harvest. Let's bow and prepare our hearts for prayer. Saints, the beauty of the gospel. Christ in us, the hope of glory. I know it is so easy for us to be distracted, discouraged, That's why we come together.
That's why we rub shoulders with one another. To help. To support. One another. And. And. Hebrews says. To provoke one another to love. And to good deeds. Because we know our own hearts. We know how we're wired. We will naturally. Kind of just fall back to that. Which is comfortable. For us. Take a brief moment before I pray and just reflect upon Christ in me, the hope of glory. Oh Lord, we are not gathered here together on mere superficialities. We are loved unconditionally by the one who made us. Father, help us, strengthen us, focus our thoughts. To live a life that is worthy of our calling. We are not gathered together. And joined together. Because of shallow philosophy. But because of Christ. In us. The hope of glory. It is that same gospel truth that converted Paul that turned him from a man of hatred for Christians to a man literally who would do anything so that just one more person could hear the good news of Christ. I consider it all loss, he says. All of my religiosity, all of my futile attempts to impress God with my own self-righteousness. Oh, but now I'm found in him. Thank you for your work of grace in so many of our lives. Not just here, but around the world. Thank you for Daniel, who loves you. Who passionately loves people. Who works a night job to support his family. So that he can be free to study your word. And to help people walk with you. Because he's been on the dark side. Lord we always pray that we would in fact be good news to those people around us. They may not like our convictions. They may not like our what we stand upon. But we pray that they would see at the end of the day. They've got something that we don't have. Christ in us. The hope of glory. Awaken us. Refresh us. Encourage us. And to the degree that we have deviated. 
Bring us back on the path we belong. Thank you for the simplicity and the power of the good news of Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If there be but one person this morning or in the sound of my voice who is not Turn to Christ and put their faith in him as their Savior and Lord. We pray that today would be the day of their salvation. Minister to us in and through us. All of these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.